Hey, Pasa Mufasa. Welcome to the Micropreneur Podcast. This is a podcast about people solving problems with mushrooms. And today on the pod, we've got one of the co-founders of the immensely influential podcast and media platform, Psychedelics Today. We've got Kyle Oler. I really think about integration um, and also this concept of like embodiment. So how are we bringing back these experiences and these visions? And I think that is a challenge for a lot of people. Like I just think about a lot of my experiences. Some of it felt really chaotic or they felt very big. Kyle is an early adopter of public facing advocacy for the healing and transformative value of psychedelic assisted therapy. And today, He's dropping intel on how he came to occupy the position he currently enjoys as a stalwart of the emerging psychedelic media landscape. We're also going to talk about some of Kyle's formative experiences studying plant medicine in Hawaii under Kat Harrison. And we're talking about macrodoses in the context of visionary exploration as well as strategies for grounding and integrating some of these visions or the vision that one may receive via psilocybin-induced psychedelic initiations at the macrodose level. We're also talking about optimization strategies for growing a successful podcast, which Kyle would know a thing or two about as Psychedelics Today recently hit the 2 million download benchmark. Holy guacamole. So let's get down to business. Hey, Pasa Mufasa, Kyle Bowler of Setting Sun Wellness and Psychedelics Today. Welcome to the Micropreneur Podcast, Kyle. How's it going today? Not too bad. Thanks for having me, Dennis. Excited to be here. Sure. Well, I noticed that you're an avid bike rider and also the host of the Psychedelics Today podcast. And given the historic connection between bicycles and psychedelics, do you ever <laughs> microdose? Which I want to say is a new term I may have just made up. I have to be honest, I've never, never tried it. Um, I think one day I will. Um, I try to be pretty safe on my bike around where I'm at, just on a bunch of backcountry roads, people flying and doing crazy stuff. So uh, yeah, I, I worry about safety at times <laughs> around here. Totally understandable. I just thought it'd be a fun lead in for the interview here. So I was checking out your website, Setting Sun Wellness, and I came across a reference to you studying plant medicine in Hawaii with Kat Harrison, which is a name I immediately recognized and ventured to guess that you may have been at Botanical Dimensions, an ethno-botanical library yeah. and psychoactive plant sanctuary under the loving care of Kat. How did that extraordinary opportunity come about? And can you tell us a little bit about that experience, Kyle? Yeah, it was such a unique opportunity. So I was doing my undergrad, I did an undergrad in transpersonal psychology at a little school called Burlington College. And it was a pretty kind of self-directed program. And I had the opportunity to put together a lot of independent studies. Um, and ironically, I think it was like towards the end of my degree there, um, Kat Harrison and uh, another person that was a, a, an instructor at Goddard College, another uh, college in Vermont, they were offering this course and I saw that anybody could sign up for it. And so when I saw uh, Kat offering this, uh, I think it was like a week long 
course, uh, or maybe it was a little bit over a week. I was, I immediately was like, I, I have to sign up for this. And so I was able to get college credit for it through my college, through like some sort of credit exchange through Goddard and Burlington college. Um, and it was awesome. So we just spent time in Hawaii learning about some of the indigenous farming techniques around there, learn how to make cordage, um, learned about the local medicinal plants that they used for, for various things. And I think that was back in 2012. So it was definitely a while ago, um, but it was awesome. I mean, it was, I felt very humbled to be able to just spend time with Kat and the other instructors there, just learning from them. Kat just is uh, just a beautiful soul. I just felt so honored to just be able to, to be with her for that time. That's a super unique opportunity, and I would love to see more of those ethnobotanical libraries opening up around the world, and I think we're starting to see maybe some more micropreneurs and people involved in that space start to really take stewardship into their own hands and start to invest in situations like that. So it's super cool that you had a chance to do that, and no doubt it had a pretty momentous impact on you. So let's uh, shift gears a little bit and address the fact that we're living in very strange times right now. So I thought maybe we could dive a little bit into some of the shadow realm dynamics for a minute. And in particular, I'd love to talk about this concept of psychedelic narcissism, whereas the psychedelic experience and, and psychedelic movement is picking up so much momentum. And in mainstream culture, there are hundreds or thousands of underground ceremonies, mushroom ceremonies, entheogenic ceremonies taking place on any given night in any city around the world. And as this rising demand, there comes a coterie of self-anointed shamans and facilitators who have not gone through any kind of professional trainer training or ancestral lineage maybe they don't come from. So as a consequence of this, there's been widespread examples of psychedelic narcissism, which is pretty antithetical to all the good, warm, fuzzy mushroom juju that we all read about. So right. I was wondering... I'm wondering if you could shed any insights on maybe how to identify a psychedelic narcissist and what are some of the ways that maybe communities can emphasize preventative measures to mitigate against some of the abuses that might occur under these individuals? Oh, man, yeah, this is such a hot topic. I was actually on a little Clubhouse panel a few months ago. Um, haven't been really active on Clubhouse uh, recently, but it was... Um put together and the the title was called how to spot a, a psychedelic narcissist sitter shaman or something like that and you know one expert on there was an expert in narcissistic personality disorder and they were really kind of mentioning how some of these roles really kind of attract those types of personalities and i think it's really surrounded by the power that is kind of um, that I think we project onto say shamans or the plant medicines that we know something special here, right? And it, being able to tap into some of these like quote unquote magical powers at times and feeling like we have the capacity to, to heal people. And um, just thinking about the dynamics between like narcissistic personality, people that do gaslighting, and then this weird um, relationship between the gaslighting or the narcissist and the person that is very empathetic um, and how they almost kind of like go hand in hand. Um, and so, yeah, we, we are seeing a lot of uh, people with these personalities kind of step into these roles. Um, and something I always come back to is how uh, Dr. Stanislav Grof defines psychedelics as nonspecific amplifiers of mental or psychic processes. And so one thing, um, one of my partners, Joe Moore over at Psychedelics Today always brings up that, you know, people like Charlie Manson happened, right? Um, and that 
they psychedelics, you know, we, they they have this healing tendency, this healing quality, but it also has this tendency to amplify what's in. So if people are already kind of having these personality traits, I mean, what happens when that gets amplified? Maybe we get like a lot of grandiose thinking that all of a sudden I had this one trip or this one experience and maybe I feel like I'm God or I, I have this like special power to heal people. Now I need to step into this role. And now all of a sudden I have this power over people. And there's something sexy about that for some people where it's like, oh, yeah, I really want to step into this. I know kind of like the magic of the universe that you don't know. And I can show you this. Um, and so, you know, I think it, it kind of bre it, it really attracts those types of personalities from time to time. So, you know, how do you spot that? You know, I think if you're going to retreats or you're starting to work with people in the underground, really just like tune into your to your own self and feel what type of vibe are you getting from this person you know do they have agenda in your own healing you know are they interjecting are they telling you how it's supposed to be are they really trying to like shape your experience and really thinking about the container that that they're trying to create for you and you know if you if you feel something is off there really listen to that right i think that that's really important because yeah i mean at psychedelics today we definitely get a lot of reports about abuse that's happening in the underground abuse happening at certain retreats centers. And so, yeah, it does, I feel like, attract some of these personalities at times. Sure. Thank you for your eloquent and concise response. You were ready for that one. And, you know, I've noticed that a lot of the industries that have sprung up around entheogenic healing in places where it's been legal, like in Iquitos, Peru was a big hotspot for, you know, seekers and people from all over the world traveling for ayahuasca tourism, for lack of a better name. And I've seen similar situations unfold and a lot of maybe more off the radar places where it's easier to sweep things under the rug. It's uh, yeah. easier, you know, if something happens, it doesn't necessarily make the news or, or it gets out. So I just think as more and more people are starting to turn to these substances, it's definitely worth the conversation because sometimes there's this misrepresentation of everything being all light work and love and friendly and happy. And I've heard so many accounts and, you know, spoken with so many people who have had different experiences than that. So I just think it's worth noting and paying attention to. So I've been following your work and checking out various Psychedelics Today live streams and articles, etc. And I know you've talked ad nauseum about the near-death experience you had in your teenage years and how it's shaped your life work. So I was hoping you could touch on that episode for our audience and also have any of your experiences with psilocybin mushrooms in particular approximated the gravity or impact of your near-death experience. Yeah, thank you. There's an episode I did with uh, Hallie Rose from the Thought Room podcast, and I can send a link over to you. And I think I do a pretty good job of going into my experience, um, really kind of, yeah, just really going into it in a lot of detail there. So, you know, I, I could send that over. People can listen to that. But yeah, so I guess I'll just give an, an overview of what happened there. So when I was 16, I got in a really traumatic snowboarding accident. I was going around this turn and there was a mount of snow and a blind spot. I was night skiing over in the Poconos. I grew up in New Jersey and I just hit this mount of snow, flew through the air about like 30 feet. It wasn't very high, but I was going fast and the nose of my snowboard hit, my shoulder hit and I heard a loud pop and I thought I snapped a rib. By the time I got down to the first aid station, um, they told me my vitals looked pretty low. My ribs are fine. Um, I probably had internal injuries. So by the time I got, they luckily they medevaced me out and got a, a helicopter 
doctor to send me to the hospital because if they didn't, I probably wouldn't be here right now if they just stuck with the ambulance. But yeah, by the time I got to the hospital, I lost about five to five and a half pints of blood internally. I ruptured my spleen, so I was dying from massive internal bleeding. And I remember as I was in the CAT scan machine, as they were trying to figure out where I had this bleeding coming from, there was like this orb of light that was coming over me. And there was this voice saying, you know, you're going home, you're going back to the stars where we all come from. And the more that you struggle with this, the harder it's going to be. So, you know, if you're able to let go, uh, the easier this transition is going to be. This is just a transition. Um, your physical life's going to cease to exist, but you'll, you'll continue onward. And I remember at that point, I was so blissed out and felt like, wow, I'm going home. This is what we're all waiting for. And it felt very complete. And then I, I woke up in the ICU unit and you know, my family standing around me and just so confused about like what just happened. I knew it was still New Year's Eve. And I remember I asked, I was like, did the ball drop? Like, what time is it? But there was a part of me, it felt like my soul went somewhere, like something just felt very off after that. So I fell into a pretty deep depression, like for like a couple months, two years after that experience, like I definitely had the highs for about like, I don't know, six months. I was like, you know, so thankful to be alive. But, you know, some of these deep valleys were very existential, very nihilistic, like nothing, nothing matters. Why do anything? I'm going to die at, at any point. Um, so really trying to process a lot of trauma. And it wasn't until I came across uh, psilocybin. I think I was 19 at the time. I had around two grams and I was in the woods with a friend of mine. And I only had psilocybin one time before this. And it was a smaller dose. Definitely would not prepare me for, for what I was about to experience. But this experience at psilocybin really helped me to kind of recontextualize that psycho-spiritual trauma that I went through and helped to provide a little bit of answers or a little bit of context around some of the deep questions I was asking. And you know, I, I took this the, the mushrooms and I had this experience of blacking out, leaving my body, actually reliving my near-death experience to some degree, having some sort of entity contact and just thinking like, holy shit, like I've been here before. And I remember these entities came out and said thousands of times. And I said, whoa, I must be in some sort of death bardo. And it just really helped to, uh, you know, yeah, it helped to put some context to it. And, and, you know, a question I get asked pretty often is like with these entity contact, like what, what was going on there? I could see it in a lot of different ways where, you know, maybe if we're looking from the shamanic perspective, these entities are real and we're going into a different dimension. And then I think the other part of it is maybe a little bit more psychological of interacting with an archetype. I mean, it was a total trickster archetype that I was interacting with. And I think I was also in the process of really trying to, to make sense of my near death experience. And so, you know, maybe that's how my mind was trying to just provide a little bit of context of where did I go that night? Who did I speak to? You know, these were questions that were just lingering after my near death experience of going, I felt like I went somewhere. I felt like I talked to somebody, somebody gave me all this information. And during the psilocybin experience, I went back to this state and I said, oh, okay, this starts to make sense now. Um, and that really changed my life. It really kind of got me more motivated to want to explore consciousness. It made me kind of, it got me on a path to, to do a, a psychology degree. And yeah, it really kind of pushed me on a healing path. So I'm very fortunate for it and grateful. Fantastic. Not so many people have such a jarring entree into the world of altered states, but it seems like it, it worked out. It's working out for you so far. So that seems like a nice launch point to talk about this entity contact and the gift of vision, which is another bit mm. I pulled from your website. 
having a clear and concise vision to anchor and guide our decisions, which is one of the quintessential hallmarks of a successful vision quest or transcendental psychedelic experience. So to pick one angle to unpack here, more and more people are starting to dive headfirst into ultra macrodose realms of psilocybin mushrooms, 15, 20 grams of psilocybin or more. We just hosted someone who is of an indigenous healing lineage and regularly hosts ceremonies where all the participants are taking over 15 grams, which is pretty pretty up there, right? And these realms hold enormous visionary, mystical, and transcendental potential, as many people who have undergone a journey in this range can test to. So, so my question is, what are some practical ways or strategies for people to clarify and maintain a keen sense of the vision that they're gifted with in an altered mm. state, despite the insane level of distraction and diversion that exists in our society at the present moment? Like, the way our society seems to be set up, especially today, it seems to negate a lot of these overarching takeaways that many people have from a profound psychedelic experience. So how do we maintain our clarity of vision that we're gifted in the face of all this noise and conflict? Yeah, wonderful question. Before I answer that, have you ever stumbled across Kalindi IE? A hundred percent. I'm a huge yeah. fan. We've had Darren Springer on the podcast, Good cool. Fortune, and, and uh, he's. I'm really glad that his voice is getting out there into the ether. Yeah. Well, for those that don't know, um, Kalindi passed uh, last year, but I remember the first time I saw him, it was at a conference and he's talking about eating 30 to 40 grams of mushrooms. And I was just blown away. I was like, geez, like what is he experiencing in these realms? Um, but yeah, this idea of vision, I think like how to really clarify that. I, I really think about integration um, and also this concept of like embodiment. So how are we bringing back these experiences and these visions. And I think that is a challenge for a lot of people. Like I just think about a lot of my experiences, some of it felt really chaotic or they felt very big. It's like, you know, you, you go into these realms, you may get like really distinct downloads of like maybe this is what you need to be doing in your life. Maybe it's around kind of soul life purpose. And maybe you get like visions of the future and you're like, okay, now what the hell do I do with this? And that could be really confusing. Something I, I come back to is really using your body as an instrument. So how is that feeling in your body and how can you discern whether or not that feels true to you? You know, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, and that psilocybin experience, it felt like I was confronting the trickster archetype. And in some of these realms, I mean, you are confronted with somewhat trickster energy. And do you always have to believe in the trickster, right? Is the trickster always providing truth to you? And sometimes you have to really kind of ask yourself these questions like, is, does that feel truthful to me? Does that feel valid? And so really learning how to discern information in these these realms, I think is is really important. So, you know, a technique that I, I tend to rely on is really listening to my body. So, you know, I think about some of these experiences that I've had. I mean, I always come back to, to Terrence McKenna. I think he said this is that psilocybin and psychedelics seem to promote funny ideas. Um, and for anybody that's really been in those realms, some, sometimes there's a lot of absurdity and a lot of funny ideas. And so how do we come back and, and really discern like what feels, feels good? And so I really try to listen to my gut there and go, you know, if it's really kind of in my mind, it feels like noise, maybe I don't need to listen to it. But if, if this is really sitting deep, deep 
in my my pelvic floor, my abdomen, and my gut is really just like yelling at me. Well, maybe that's something to listen to. And another thing I, I often talk about is how can we test that vision out a little bit? You know, say if you get a vision to just pick up and move and change careers and, and change locations, it's like, that's what I have to do. Sometimes that's good, right? I mean, sometimes people need the motivation to make that change. But, um, you know, this, I think this is something I talk in, in our Navigating Psychedelics class around integration challenges is Dr. Jessica Katzman brought up this concept of a therapeutic bends is when you go so deep down, like she's using the scuba dive analogy and this rapid change happens, it can be really dysregulating. And so how can we maybe titrate that a little bit and say, okay, well, I got this really big vision. I, I understand it. I need, I, I know what I need to be doing. Well, how could you move into that a little bit? So I'm just going to use this like, you know, idea of moving to a new place and picking up and going to a new career. What would it feel like to actually go to that place for a weekend or a week and really feel that out? Listen to your body. Does that still feel good? Does the landscape feel good to you? Um, and really start to kind of tune into that a little bit more. You know, we, I sometimes talk about this window of opportunity after psychedelic experiences. Sometimes you get these like really big ideas and maybe you've been simmering on it for months or years. And you do get that motivation to make that change. And maybe that is something to follow through on. But sometimes when you get these really big ideas out of nowhere, it's good to sit with it for a bit. And I really kind of like this like alchemical process of sitting in the fire with these visions. It might change over time, but really like kind of sitting with it and seeing how it shifts um, over weeks to months. And if it still feels good, move forward with it. So th those are some of the ways I approach that. Awesome. And, you know, a couple things just resonated with me. One is that one of the modules in one of your courses, I remember, is called Remember You Are on Drugs. And I think that's a, <laughs> probably a good thing to unpack before you get a big chest tattoo of a, a mushroom yeah. coming out of your stomach. And then the next little bit is to borrow another analogy from Terrence McKenna. He talked about these incredible experiences in terms of fishing. And you're probably not going to pull up a huge two-ton whale from the depths and bring it back to shore, but you might be able to aim for a medium-sized fish or sustenance or insight that you can pull back to your boat and take with you for practical applications. I think that's a nice way of, of framing it, too. So to pull another tasty morsel from the Setting Sun Wellness website, quote, in various indigenous and shamanic cultures, illness and disease is sometimes associated with spiritual forces. And in this regard, the forces that can cause illness are sometimes called hungry ghosts. So I'd love to talk about this idea of hungry ghosts, where maybe it is ancestors stuck in a state of limbo who continue to be hungry and feed off the life energy of individuals, creating physical sickness, mental illness, addiction, depression, etc. I actually had the good fortune of attending the Hungry Ghost Festival in Penang, Malaysia in 2014. Mm. And I've also experienced Dia de los Muertos in Oaxaca, Mexico, where, of course, these cultures referenced have a very different relationship to death than us in the West do. Now, on the first day of my media studies program at University of San Francisco, almost 15 years ago, we learned that storytellers control the culture. So I'd like to mm. touch on how death is portrayed in Western culture and media. It's shocking and it's terrifying. It's unsettling. It's viewed as a tragedy and a fear-based motivator. Do you suppose we are forever burdened as a collective Western society to have this predatory and unsettling relationship with death? Or could there be an opportunity for a new generation of storytellers to emerge who elevate a more accepting and understanding view of death? 
I'm hoping for that. Um, yeah, you know, I think we can move past it and develop a new relationship with it. And that, and that's my hope. And I think, and I, I wonder how psychedelics can play a role in that. As people start to have more uh, extraordinary experiences, how does that shift their, their role and their relationship to death? So um, I think, you know, it feels like we're in some sort of paradigm shift at times with like psychedelics reemerging, people are becoming more interested in consciousness, people are becoming interested in health and wellness in a different way. And I think and I, I wonder too about like, just in the past year, like, how has COVID confronted many of us with death in some sense, whether that's like, you know, just that feeling of lockdown and being constricted and not being able to do anything just like just I keep refer I keep reflecting back on like, when it fir- when lockdown first started happening, I'm like, man, we're getting a taste of like this collective death in some sense. And like, how is that starting to to shake us a little bit? I mean, it definitely got me thinking about how I wanted to um, live life a little bit um, in, in different ways. And, you know, one one meditation that I like to really reflect on and I, I learned about I learned this in a death and dying class. Um, and I often come back to this is, you know, how you live your life is how you prepare for death and how you prepare for death is how you live your life. And so if death is, you know, something that, that you've been kind of like pushing away, just, you know, take some time to think about that. Like, how do you want to live your life? Um, and, and just thinking about like, you know, that deathbed, you don't know when it's going to come, but you know, do you feel like you're going to, at least experience what you want to experience, show up to life and how you want to show up if you're really thinking about that. And so, you know, it's definitely going to take some conscious effort to, to develop that relationship. And, you know, I, I really hope that, that we can move past it and develop a different relationship with it because I think it really kind of bogs us down in a lot of different ways um, culturally. Yeah, and it's really interesting to hear how other cultures deal with it, right? Sure. Like I've heard about the turning of the bones in Madagascar where people literally go dig up their deceased relatives and have a barbecue with them and drink beers and then rebury them. And there's so many examples of this. I remember being a student at University of San Francisco and attending the Dia de los Muertos celebrations in the mission. And there's people banging drums and people just dancing. And, and I was thinking, man, I want to go out like this. This is a way better vibe than like all of the, you know, somber affairs I've been to where we bury a relative and everyone's crying and wearing black and all that. And, you know, everybody has their own process, but I just think it's fascinating with globalization and the acceleration of all this new data, right, coming from different parts of the world and people being able to see, oh, there's different ways of relating to this. And I certainly think that with many other processes with this too, psychedelics are going to play a huge role in how people start to evaluate kind of where they stand and, you know, these these blind spots, maybe collective blind spots that we've been unwilling to look at and examine for a long time. So you've been at the forefront of this new psychedelic renaissance as what I would call an early adopter of being public facing with your advocacy for psychedelics and your experiences. And it's something that many of us have been reluctant to do until the last year or so, I think. We're seeing a lot more people come out of the woodwork and start to publicly own their experiences and their advocacy. What was it like for you to, quote, come out of the psychedelic closet? Was it smooth and easy and everyone patted you on the back? Or were there some stumbling blocks and adversities with your family and professional communities, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely been a journey. And um, I think having my near-death experience has really helped me with that to some degree. So, you know, I was 16 when I had that near-death experience. So coming back to school and 
you know, I grew up in like somewhat of a, a, a rural conservative part of New Jersey, um, not really open to, to these ideas. And it was really hard to, to talk about my experience at times. Um, you know, it, how the hell do you talk about having a conversation with God or like, you know, just talking about these really deep existential questions or philosophical questions at 16. It it really didn't have the support there. And so what I learned early on was that this was my experience and and it's okay. And I learned, I think the importance of like kind of knowing your audience after a while of like getting shut down every once in a while of like putting this really powerful story out there and then maybe feeling a little bit of shame around it or, Ooh, maybe I shouldn't have told this person this. Um, so I think that really kind of helped prepare me for it. But once I started to, um, have these psychedelic experiences, there was just something inside of me of going like, this is just too interesting not to talk about. So, you know, when I was 19 and after having those experiences, I was definitely opening up a lot, bit, a lot more amongst friends. And, you know, I, I sometimes wonder, I'm like, what did half of my friends think back then? Like, they're probably like, man, Kyle's, you know, crazy. He's always talking about like mushrooms in a, in a very spiritual way. And, um, you know, I, yeah, now I look back and I'm like, wow, I've made somewhat of a life or career out of this to some degree. And it was, I think I found um, a really good support when I was doing my undergrad in transpersonal psychology, because it was like I was in a community where I was able to explore this and feel safe and nurtured. Like I remember just writing a lot of papers about psychedelics and just really digging into the research. And I, you know, started becoming more vocal in that academic space around my interests. And so I think that really helped prepare me too. But yeah, you know, as I started to step a little bit more into the professional like therapy space, again, it's coming back to who's my audience and and how do I talk about this with them? Because it can be kind of weird or strange or it's like, is this going to, am I creating professional suicide right now? So it's been definitely a balancing act. And I remember back in 2010, I had my first breathwork experience. And during that experience, I got the, I I started to relive that near death experience again. And, um, I I found myself back in that Bardo state and and I got this message. It was like, you need to go back and and just talk about this and, and educate people around the potential here. And I remember just sitting in that, that breathwork experience crying, saying, I don't want to have anything to do with this. I'm like, this topic is so taboo. Like, you know, it's still illegal. I don't want to be vocal about it. Um, Like, and you know, years later I, I put together a class around psychedelics for the college. And I remember my breathwork teacher going like, look, like you're, you're starting to do what, you know, you experience in that first breathwork session. And you know, that made me feel a little good. I'm like, all right, maybe I'm stepping into this, but it's definitely like a a push and pull at times. You know, it's kind of like if we look at, say, the quote unquote, like shamanic calling or illness, you know, it is like this thing where you push against it. For me, at least, I'm like, ah, sometimes I like it. Sometimes I hate it. It's scary. You know, we're still dealing with illegal, illegal substances. You know, it's, so there, there is still some of those like conflicting emotions that arise, even though I've been doing this for a while. So, you know, I think it is important to, to even share that process with people that I'm an advocate for it. I obviously have built a platform around it. But yeah, there are those times where it does feel scary because, you know, the law is a law. And I've definitely had those experiences of 
you know, of, of getting fucked over with the law, you know, like cops pulling over and giving you a speeding ticket, even though you're not speeding, you know, okay, uh, what's going on here? So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely been a journey to some degree. Yeah. And I think over the last year and a half, a lot more people have been maybe more willing to come out about it as so many peer reviewed papers yeah. are coming out. And like, you know, there's these IPOs going on in this massive conversation. And I still have a number of friends who engage with the podcast and, and audio who said, yeah, I want to come on or I want to do this, but like, I don't want to use my name, which I totally understand and support because the fact is uh, a lot of the culture at large and in people's various vocations don't necessarily support this. And it might not be, you know, the best idea for people to publicly out themselves. So, uh, but it's kind of interesting that so many people are just saying, hey, it's worth it to me. It's worth talking about this. It's worth building this platform. So I was lurking on your website on various pieces you've written and uh, you kind of just touched on this, but I wanted to build off it a little bit. I see that you're a staunch practitioner and advocate of breath work, which I want so badly to develop a routine of breath work, but I'm pretty inconsistent with my commitment to it, to be honest. And part of the reason for that, Kyle, is that there's so many breath work advocates that I've tapped into who are really hardcore individuals. And I don't necessarily resonate with it, with their live streaming, mm. live streaming themselves being super extra and looking like they're about to give themselves a hernia and pass out with these aggressive breath work techniques. And that's probably my fault for barking up the wrong tree. Um, But um, I'd I'd love to hear about some of your routine with breath work and how you incorporate it into your daily routines. Yeah, so the lineage that I come from is uh, in the lineage of holotropic breathwork. My teachers, uh, Lenny Elizabeth Gibson, are holotropic breathwork facilitators, and they've been doing that for well over 25 years at this point. And so this is more of a long-form breathing technique, usually done in a... um, Uh, a retreat format or a very long day. And so this is what I have experience with. And so this isn't something you do every day. It's not a practice that you're just doing every day or every couple, like, couple times a month. It can be very cathartic. It can be very profound. And, you know, sometimes people have like these psychedelic like experiences with this breathing technique. So like the way I've really incorporated it is, you know, I see breath as a vehicle to regulate the nervous system. And so, you know, if I I might start off with a little sitting meditation, and then I might kind of notice What's coming up in my body? Ooh, I noticed that I'm starting to feel a little bit of tension in this area. What does it feel like to breathe into that area, intensify it a little bit more? Ooh, I noticed that this anxiety is getting a little bit bigger. Okay, let me breathe into that. Let me move that energy around a little bit more. Um, And so I use breath as a way to maybe amplify my inner experience and also calm it down and maybe work with it in in a different way. Yeah, my teachers uh, are, are trained in holotropic breath work, but what they've trained us in is what they've called their dream shadow transpersonal breathwork modality. And so, you know, I'm really just titrating the experience. I'm not really kind of doing these long form things. I'm really using it as a way to regulate my nervous system. If I just notice things come up, how can I use the breath as a vehicle? So, you know, my practice may not be like a daily Wim Hof practice. You know, it might just be during the day. I just notice how am I breathing? How, what's my posture? Can I adjust this? Can I take a couple deep breaths to just tune into my body? Ooh, I noticed that there's something in there. Can I, you know, make that a little bit bigger? 
bigger to maybe process it in a different way. So yeah, I definitely don't have like a like a meditation breathwork practice or a Wim Hof breathwork practice. Mine's very more kind of like a somatic type of processing breathwork practice where if it feels like it's coming up, you know, I'm really trying to focus on my body and focus on processing any of that emotion in there. Um, and then yeah, just throughout the day, just really just paying attention to how I'm breathing. I'm like, Ooh, my shoulders are like hunched up. I'm kind of constricted. What does it feel to like throw your chest back a little bit more and take some slower, deep breaths? Okay. Wow. I noticed I've been constricted all day and I've just really needed to slow down and, and change my posture and breathe a little bit deeper. So that's how I kind of approach breath work. Cool. And I think there's so much synergistic potential between a psilocybin mushroom experience and breath work, totally. like you mentioned, maybe done over a, a weekend or done in some kind of a retreat type setting. So I'd personally love to explore that more. So we, we touched on most of what I wanted to get into today, but I was hoping we could talk about podcasting for a minute. This is a fledgling enterprise. We had our first episode in January 2021, actually with Michelle Janikian. And we've nice. already seen a lot of improvement over the 22 episodes that have been released just on the front end and the back end and the workflow and whatnot. So I was curious about what are some of the adjustments or improvements that you've made with psychedelics today now that you have more than 250 episodes under your belt? And congratulations on that. Yeah, congratulations on launching uh, your podcast as well. Um, oh, man, when... When Joe and I first started, we started in 2016. It was just like a little passion project to try to um, bring the breathwork conversation back into the psychedelic conversation. And I mean, we were doing everything pretty much like that week. We would record the interview that week, edit it, get it up. And you know, now now we have a, a nice little team to work with. So we've really kind of streamlined that process. I think the one thing that made it much easier over the years is batching content and really kind of um, um, you know, spreading ourselves a little bit more. Joe and I would show up on every podcast together for the first few years. And now we've kind of like branched off and sometimes I'll record an episode or, you know, I might, I was getting really busy in grad school um, towards the end. So Joe was taking on a bunch more interviews and I wasn't showing up. Um, so it was really kind of like, all right, let's see where our energy can go. And all right, I'm not going to show up and you can d go do this. You can go do that. But really trying to batch content and having a nice consistent backlog was really, really important for us and just makes life a lot simpler. So, you know, you have like maybe 10 or 15 episodes in the backlog. You're not worrying about needing to schedule an interview and create all that content the week of. So I think for anybody really kind of getting involved in this space, learning how to batch your content and get a bunch of interviews recorded and kind of have that content planned out over the next month or so is, is you know, really helpful if you can do that and you, you have a team to work with. And yeah, I mean, we've hired the, the audio editor. We have people doing the show notes. And so they have their own process where, you know, the audio editor will, will, will edit it, then they'll send it over to the show note person, they'll type up the show notes, and then we have the people kind of create all the images. So it's it's been really nice nice for Joe and I to kind of back off a little bit on that and just show up and do the interviews and, and do some of that and kind of show up for what we, we love to do. But yeah, in the beginning, I mean, we were doing all that for probably the first like two years, three years or something like that. It was, it was a lot. It was, it was, a, it was a, makes me appreciate podcasts a lot more because I know how much time and effort goes into it. Sure. It's kind of funny to like do the content, do the interview, get everything together and then be ready to release it wherever you want to put it out and promote it. And you're like, this is a whole other job 
now. Like I just the work yeah. is just starting now to do the thumbnail and the this and the that and the oh, hashtags man. and whatnot. But you know what? Everybody's got to wear all the hats at least a little bit yep. when you're giving birth to something. Totally, so totally. Before before we wrap up today, I just love to hear if there's any projects on the horizon for you personally or for psychedelics today that you'd like to share with our audience and tap into for a minute. Yeah, thank you. So the main project that I've been working on at Psychedelics today is really focusing on our education and our training. So we have an eight-week online uh, program called Navigating Psychedelics for Clinicians and Therapists. Um, anybody can join. Um, it's just kind of uh, geared towards clinicians and therapists so we can offer continuing ed credits. Um, and what we're really trying to do is... Um, help to create some literacy around psychedelics for people that are working with clients. We, we know that this renaissance is kind of emerging. It's hitting the mainstream. People are showing up in, um, you know, counseling sessions or just in different professional places and saying, Hey, like I heard about microdosing. I kind of want to like explore this or, Hey, I heard, uh, you know, psilocybin is really great for X, Y, and Z. And I, and I really want to do that. So we're really trying to just get people up to speed around how, to how to talk about this with clients, how to talk about it with whatever field you're in, um, and really also how to navigate the space. So, I mean, there's a lot of different kind of emerging um, industries that are happening and, and really just trying to give people an overview of like, how can you get involved and, and how, how can you enter the space right now? So, yeah, we, we have this uh, eight-week program that goes over like basic harm reduction and then we get a little bit more into some clinical aspects of like how, what is integration? How can you provide that to clients? How can you support clients that are, are, are doing their own medicine work, whether they're going down to Peru or going to Jamaica, Mexico, wherever they're, they're having those ceremonies, maybe it's in the underground. Yeah, just really trying to train people to get more up to speed on, on what's going on here. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Kyle, for coming on the Micopreneur podcast today. I really appreciate it. And we're looking forward to following your work. Yeah, thank you for having me. Really enjoyed it. There's so much to cover in the mushroom universe and so many mycopreneurs leveraging the infinite potential of fungi to create a more ecologically balanced, inclusive, and equitable world for all of us mischievous little monkeys. I am completely stoked that you've chosen to spend some of your hard-earned time in our little corner of the mycoverse. Hop on the gram, say what's up, at mycopreneur podcast, that's the handle, don't get it twisted. We've got the full suite of social media up and running. Twitter, Micopreneur. Got the YouTubes dialed in, Micopreneur. Drop us a line. Tell your grandma and your kooky uncle. Tell your wife and your kids. If you're a Micopreneur yourself, you want to hop on the pod, by all means, willkommen, bienvenidos, welcome. Don't be a stranger. Let us know your thoughts on this episode, and also let us know what you want to hear in future episodes. This is a team effort. Thanks for stopping by the Micopreneur Podcast. Have a lovely day. We'll see you back here next week.